your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. My guest today is Leo Hanyan. Lee is a senior fellow at the Hoover Institute and a professor of economics at UCLA. Lee, welcome to the Debt Dialogues. Thanks so much. Now, the purpose of this podcast is to educate young people about the welfare state, and in particular about the enormous burden old age welfare programs like Social Security will have on them in the years ahead. And one of the major arguments against doing something to deal with these programs right now and the enormous amount of welfare spending that takes place because of them is that our current problems, and specifically low growth and high unemployment, are the result of too little government spending. And this is something we hear, for instance, from Paul Krugman and many, many others. So I wanted to talk today about our current problems, their source, and whether people like Krugman are right. And I want to start with this. What is the state of today's economy? Well, today's economy is very depressed. There's really two components to economic growth. And those two components are productivity growth and jobs growth. So in other words, how much income is produced in the country and how many goods and services just depends upon how many people we have working and how productive they are. Any factor that impacts economic growth has to go through one of those two channels or both of those channels. And right now, jobs are depressed by about 6% relative to where we were in 2007. What I mean by that is that our employment to population ratio is down by about 6% relative to its number in 2007. And that's a, a statistic that gets discussed widely in the media. And the other statistic that's very problematic for our economy today is not discussed very widely, and that is the fact that our productivity growth is less than half of its normal rate. What I mean by that is that between 1947 up to about 2005, business sector productivity, which is the percentage change annually in business sector output measured per hour of work grew at about 2.5% per year. And at that rate, living standards grow uh, about every uh, 30 years. Our current growth rate of productivity is less than 1% per year. So that is only about uh, less than 40% of this normal growth rate. So when you take the shortfall in productivity and the shortfall in jobs, we're producing about $1.5 trillion less uh, than we should be had our economy be on trend. So uh, our economy is very substantially depressed. We've never had an economy like this uh, really ever five years after a recession uh, as we have today. Now, there's a big debate about the cause of the Great Recession, and I want to set that aside if possible for now. Um, what I want to ask instead is, whatever the cause, why haven't we seen recovery? Well, there's a number of factors, in my opinion, that contribute to that. 
One is really the fact we just touched on, which is that productivity growth is very low. And in the past, particularly say the 1980s and 1990s, when productivity growth was fairly high, what that meant was a lot of new business entering our economy, a small fraction of those businesses will become successful. So Microsoft, Apple, Intel, people like Steve Jobs, people like Bill Gates, uh, people like Fred Smith the FedEx, a handful of these startups will become the economic types of tomorrow. And those are the companies that create the enormous number of jobs that we saw uh, in those decades. Today, the business creation rate is 30% below what it used to be in the 1980s. And what that means is that we're getting less new companies, which means we're getting less new rapid-growing companies. And not only are we getting less rapid-growing companies, but the the real success stories of new companies, they're not growing nearly as uh, rapidly as, say, the Microsoft and Apple did in the 1980s and 1990s. So we're creating far fewer job opportunities today uh, on a per capita basis relative to what we were doing in uh, in uh, the 1980s and 1990s. Um, another factor that's impacting job growth and probably productivity growth is that we have regulatory burdens now in the economy that uh, didn't exist at the same level in the 1980s and the 1990s. We have OSHA regulations, EPA regulations that are a considerable burden to small businesses. And when small business owners and would-be entrepreneurs are surveyed about the main problems that they face and the main impediments creating the businesses, they cite regulatory concerns. They cite a tax code that penalizes small businesses, including very high marginal tax rates. And they also cite a workforce that is becoming uncompetitive uh, relative to our previous standing. So in other words, new businesses have trouble finding workers that are at a sufficiently skilled level as to be able to make contributions immediately. So there are a number of factors involved, I think, in understanding today's depressed economy. Um, and a number of those factors are directly or indirectly being negatively impacted by, in my opinion, government interventions and regulations. Well, let me push back against that last point a little bit because the often the counter will be, well, of course the businessmen are going to say that it's the burdens of government that are making it hard for them. That's more self-serving rhetoric than real evidence. Yes, we can look at the best way we can do is really look at the data and look to see how many startups are occurring and then try to look at the economic landscape and ask objectively as economists and researchers, you know, how do we see the economic landscape being impacted by government? And then ask, you know, do our findings dovetail with what actual decision makers are doing, those who are hiring workers and making investments, buying equipment? And in this case, the answers are dovetailing. The independent research that we are conducting at the contributions of taxes and regulations and interventions on economic growth, they really are 
coming up, you know, we're coming up with the same answers as what, what business are saying. So I understand people maybe think, sure, business people always always complain. Uh, but but in this case, you know, their complaints are, are dead on with the research conclusions that we as uh, economic researchers are, are reaching. Now, some people have a different explanation for why we haven't seen recovery. And, and there's, you know, various forms. But here's one very popular one, which is um, that, look, the problem that we have is one of aggregate demand. It's that people aren't buying stuff. And so if you're a businessman, you have no incentive to expand production and hire. And that's exactly why we need a real stimulus instead of the pathetically small one we got several years ago. What do you say to that? That's a very popular answer in certain quarters. You you mentioned Paul Krugman, and I, I don't think a week goes by when his New York Times column doesn't mention aggregate demand. And that answer has absolutely no content. And this is here's why I say that. Um, imagine the economy is depressed entirely because of supply side reasons. Imagine it's depressed because taxes are extraordinarily high, much higher than they are today in the United States. Imagine the regulation is much, much higher than it is in the United States. Imagine that we all agreed that supply-side factors were depressing the economy. Well, if you go and ask uh, business what's wrong, they'll say, not enough people are walking in my door and buying the stuff I make. My demand is down. And that's always the case in a poor economy. And it's the case that an individual producer observes independent of what deep economic factors are leading to that. So from that standpoint, it is incredibly difficult simply just to assert aggregate demand. Sure, people aren't buying stuff. Sure, they aren't. And at the same time, people aren't producing stuff. What I would say to go a bit beyond that and to look at some evidence is that we have looked at the employment to population rate, and we've looked at the price of the growth rate. And one can look at various government interventions that were designed to restore prosperity, including the American Recovery and Reinvestment Act, which was Obama's stimulus plan, cash for clunkers, the home buyers uh, tax credit, which was intended to stabilize the housing industry. We can look at the Federal Reserve QE1, 2, 3, and the variations on that theme. We can look at the payroll tax holidays. And if you draw a timeline of whatever your favorite measured economic performance is, whether it's uh, growth rate of GDP, whether it's the change in the employment and population ratio, you don't see any of these programs making any difference whatsoever. And I think perhaps more important, we are about seven percentage points below trend in terms of productivity. Now, everybody, I would think even Krugman would agree that productivity is a supply-side factor. It's also the factor that's by far the most important contributor to our increases in standard of living that we've enjoyed in the United States that have almost occurred without interruption since the founding of the public. Um, and no one, even Krugman, have ever advanced the idea that, oh, gee, you know, if we do, if, we, if the government spends more money or we dig some holes, pay some people to dig some holes and then fill them up, that will improve productivity. Uh, no one's ever made that argument. So 
even if you if you, even if you simply put aside the the issue of jobs, we're still about 1.1 trillion dollars below trend every year in terms of lost output just to productivity. And productivity most of the time is free is purely a supply side issue. Now I've seen claims that there has been rising productivity, yet it hasn't translated into gains by labor and by in terms of people's incomes and wages. Um, first of all, can you just clarify, like, what is the actual facts of that, and then if that's happening, how does one explain that? Sure. So we see. So there's a difference between productivity growth in a few industries and then productivity growth for the entire economy. So there have been industries such as information processing and technology industries that traditionally have been rapid productivity growth industries. That is, there's new innovations, new developments that are taking place quickly and that increases output per worker. Now, what's interesting and somewhat intriguing and something we don't have a full explanation for is that productivity growth in these traditional high-tech sectors that have been among the economy's leaders, productivity growth in those sectors has actually fallen the most relative to other sectors. So those sectors are still growing above the average, but the gap between their growth rate and the average has fallen considerably. Uh, so in terms of facts, business sector output per hour is growing only about 1% per year since 2000, I believe 2006. Its average growth rate is about 2.5% per year. So there's about a 40% or perhaps even um, more than, uh, what about, about a 60%, perhaps even more than that 60% shortfall in that growth rate. Um, now, what we typically see is that when our economy does grow, when productivity does grow, uh, workers are becoming more productive, and their compensation reflects that increased productivity. Uh, we are not seeing enormous gains in wages for workers, and one reason is because productivity is not growing very rapidly. In the few sectors of the economy where productivity growth is fairly high, uh, and there's a strong demand for workers, such as in the energy sector, wages are going up. But in much of the rest of the economy, you know, they aren't growing up very much. And, you know, that's, that's a problem. But at the end of the day, uh, how, do we, how do we grow workers with high wages? It's by producing workers that can create a lot of value for the organization they work in. And that goes back to issues such as the quality of training and education in our economy. And right now we're failing at that. Only about one-third of our secondary school uh, students are proficient at math and science, um, as measured by international test score comparisons. And that compares to 70% of students in Japan, Korea, uh, Hong Kong. Um, so we would love to see wages go up. The way we get wages to go is by producing high productivity, high value added workers, that's not going to happen overnight. That's a result of training and human capital accumulation, and that's going to take a while. And we have to do a better job of educating students in secondary school and creating training opportunities for them after they get out of secondary school, both in terms of traditional colleges and perhaps newer vocational programs. 
Um, I want to turn to an example or, or, or an issue that you, I mean you've done a lot of research on, and that's the Great Depression, because we are one of the comparisons that's often made is that it was precisely uh, government stimulus and spending that saved us from the depression. And this would then be a counterexample to um, arguing that that's not the problem today. Yes. In, um, I've studied the Great Depression for, yeah, gosh, you know, it's been over 15 years now, uh, and I continue, I continue to conduct research on this topic, both the U.S. Great Depression, the 30s and Great Depression, and other countries at, at that time and other times. And perhaps the most factually incorrect treatment of any important historical episode in the history of the U.S. is the Great Depression. And you know, just the facts that are presented oftentimes are either incorrect or presented very uh, inaccurately. So I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. Um, and one of them relates to the idea that capitalism was broken, we had a depression, the economy wasn't working, and required massive government intervention and new regulations and government spending and, govern and new legislation to rescue capitalists. So, I mean, my research essentially says nothing could be farther from the truth. So let's start back in 1929, just when the, just when the economy was peaking. At that time, President Herbert Hoover called a meeting together at the White House in mid-November of 1929, shortly after the stock market crash, and he met with the titans of industry. So he met with Henry Ford of Ford Motor Company and Alfred Sloan, chairman of GM, and Pierre DuPont of DuPont Chemicals, and right down the list. And he told them that the law towards unions was changing. It was no longer going to be acceptable or legal to block unions. That if they agreed to either not change wages or preferably to increase wages, that he would work with unions and prevent them from calling strikes and interfering with production. And the business people in that room agreed. So this was the first case of what I would call government wage fixing, really, in the history, uh, certainly non-peacetime, uh, or peacetime, uh, of the U.S. economy. And, well, what happens in the Depression? Well, we start getting deflation. And business people honored their obligation and did not cut wages. But what happens when wages are fixed in dollar terms and deflation occurs is that the real wage rises. And as real wages rise, businesses hire fewer people. And in 1930 and 1931, we're in a massive depression already. And in particular, we were in a massive depression before any of the banking panics or bank failures that Ben Bernanke, then chairman of the Federal Reserve, appealed to when he put together various types of stabilization and bailout programs for banks. We were in a massive depression before any banking panics or any bank failures in the United States. Um, industrial production was depressed by about 35% within the first year of the Depression. That was before any banking panics. And in 1930 and 1931, business would call up Uber and say, we're having a real hard time, we're losing money, would you support us in cutting wages just to the extent that our prices are falling? 
And the response from the White House was, no, there will be hell to pay with people. So we really see this, and this is a great example of just basic supply and demand in economics. Labor became very expensive, and businesses stopped hiring so many workers. Now, not surprisingly, Hoover is ousted in election 32. FTR comes in. FTR puts in, uh, FTR basically doubles down on Hoover's idea of high wages. FTR rewrites laws to say antitrust law, the laws that protect consumers from monopoly, will be suspended provided that industries cooperate with each other and uh, engage in what FTR called codes of fair competition. Now, today we know that a lot of competition is really important because it means consumers get the best prices and resources are allocated to the most efficient producers. But back in the day, FDR thought too much competition was a bad thing. So what happened is that Chrysler and GM and Ford colluded. U.S. Steel and Bethlehem Steel colluded in the steel industry. They were able to do this because they raised wages immediately. And again, you just see basic supply and demand at work. In 1932, in 1933, 34, 35, 36, there's very little recovery in jobs. So the work I've done shows graphs that show there's almost no change in the number of hours worked per capita in the United States. Whatever recovery did occur, almost all of it came from productivity, from the usual forces of new products and inventions and uh, diffusion of new technology. The whole idea of FDR's New Deal was to get Americans back to work, and it failed. We did not get a restoration of jobs until really until about 1940, 1941. At that time, to FDR's credit, he started reversing himself on many of these bond market policies and, and Doing a doing an about face on uh, wage fixing policies and uh, antitrust policies. Um, so many people read history books and say, "Oh, look at this! You know, income went up during the 19 during the late 1930s, and that had to be because of the government." Well, jobs didn't go up. Whatever increase in incomes that occurred was because producers became more efficient. And those efficiency gains, I've never seen anyone argue with the result of government intervention. Well, that raises the question, since productivity is really a key concept here, what government policies encourage uh, or very much discourage productivity? Well, innovation and new ideas is really the key behind growing productivity creating and creating new jobs. So tax rates are important in terms of understanding innovation and new technology development. Um, business regulations are important. Um, today we've had things like uh, R&D tax credits, uh, although you know, I don't remember this off the top of my head, but these are typically programs that are Congress has a review on very frequently, perhaps every year, every other year. So from our standpoint, in terms of developing new technology and productivity growth, um, it 
makes sense to whatever government programs we're going to think about in terms of helping productivity, they should be put in into on a permanent basis rather than in a piecemeal year-to-year basis. Um, essentially, people, you know, productivity uh, or innovation is a risky enterprise. Um, ideas are expensive to develop and implement and take to market. There's a lot of risk. Um, you know, for, for every thousand ideas, maybe a handful hit a big. Um, so to increase the incentives to innovate and try new ideas, we, you know, we simply just have to make it more profitable. So regulation and taxes is a big role, plays a big role in that. Um, immigration, I think, is probably the biggest thing we can get to in terms of a free lunch. There are uh, tens of thousands of creative, highly trained scientists, engineers, mathematicians from foreign countries who would love to be in the United States. And we make it difficult for them to come here. Uh, about half of high-tech startups are founded or co-founded by an immigrant. Um, and most of those are done by Chinese and people from India. And we have an immigration system that's a relic of 30 years ago that not only has specific quotas on the number of people who can immigrate into the U.S. for economic reasons, but has country-specific quotas as well. So we could have many more startups and presumably many more successful startups if we allowed the talented advanced degree holders who are not U.S. citizens from coming here. And the problem is so cute is that there's, uh, there is a new business incubator called Blue Sail that is going to be anchoring a ship about 12 miles off of uh, the port of San Francisco, and 12 miles being the demarcation line for international waters, and that cruise ship is going to be anchored there and going to be home to about 1,500 would-be entrepreneurs. And they're going to get in boats, and they're going to go into San Francisco, and then they're going to go down to Silicon Valley uh, without needing a visa. And when their work permit is over, they'll go back and get back on the cruise ship and wait for another opportunity. Um, that's how cheap the problem is, and that's the extent to which people would like to stay here. They're willing to live on a ship and take the expense of time to take a, take a small boat into the support and then and they go down to Silicon Valley and not be able to stay there for a particular long period of time. That just illustrates how much demand there is for talented people to want to live here and start businesses. And I think almost everyone understands we're shooting ourselves in the foot. Uh, and there have been a lot of a lot of uh, uh, bills in Congress on put forward by both Republicans and Democrats to improve this. Uh, now it doesn't appear to be getting much traction right now and all the international hostilities in the world make it more difficult, but uh, I'm hopeful that something will get done, hopefully, before too long. Now, you mentioned tax rates, and one of the uh, one claim that uh, I, I was I was in a debate with uh, a law professor, and he was he said that tax rates are lower than they've been in 50 years. What is that claim based on? And is it even? there any remote truth to it um and, and if and if so then how can we explain 
a negative effect of taxes on productivity today? Okay, well, I'll, I'll make two points. One is that the research I've done uh, with Richard Rogerson at Princeton, uh, research that Ed Prescott has done, uh, 2004 Nobel Prize winner, there's a lot of research that has connected changes in marginal tax rates to economic performance, including both jobs uh, as well as productivity. So the work I've done with Rogerson shows that a substantial uh, component of the relative job loss that has occurred in Northern and Western Europe is the consequence of high tax rates. And just to give you an idea, um, there's some population growth throughout the world in the last, you know, since 1950. Yet fewer people, uh, there's fewer hours of work being done in France today than there was in 1950. Uh, I mean, at some level, that's just shocking. There's fewer hours of work being done in Belgium today than there was in 1929. And, you know, my research and the research of others shows that taxes are playing a key role, just from the simple standpoint of changing the incentive to work. Um, Germany, for example, has held out as the economic success story for Western Europe. Yet, a fact that very few people know, I'm guessing the law professor you are arguing with doesn't know this, the number of hours worked per adult population in Germany is about 40% less today than it was in the 1980s. I mean, 40% is a remarkable number. Now, when we look at Europe and talk about innovation, is the exact same finding. Europe is lagging enormously in terms of successful innovation. So, for example, the Financial Times, uh, the international newspaper, it's, it's essentially an international version of the Wall Street Journal, you know, focused on business, commerce, and the economy. The Financial Times has an index of stocks called the FT500. It's the largest, it's the largest 500 global stocks. And among those stocks are new companies, Apple and Microsoft. And among that group is a large number of companies from the United States that have been developed since the year about 1970. I don't remember the exact number, but I think there's probably about 40 or 50 in the United States in that group of 500 leading world companies uh, that have been developed since 1970. There's only one from continental Europe, and it's an, it's an energy company uh, from Norway, which almost doesn't count because the North Sea oil is right there. So when you ask yourself about entrepreneurship in Europe, new business creation, uh, new ideas, new economic success stories, they're not coming out of continental Europe. Uh, many talented people who are in Europe would say, will say, it's not happening here. We think we would rather be in the United States. Uh, now, in terms of the actual legislative tax rates, um, you know, the effective marginal tax rates on top earners in, for example, my state of California uh, are very, very high. For example, it's a 39.6% uh, federal marginal tax rate. There is an additional tax rate built, built in from Obamacare. Uh, 
There's higher tax rates now on capital gains. There's a 35% statutory rate on capital income, which I believe is second highest in the advanced countries, perhaps behind Japan. Um, then you throw in a 13.3% tax rate uh, from the state income tax in California. There, in California, some counties have sales taxes close to 9%, and individuals are facing average marginal tax rates uh, of when they think about purchasing, taking earned income and purchasing consumption goods that is 60%. Um, and we simply have never had realizations of tax rates at that level. One might say that, you know, back before Kennedy cut taxes, there were marginal tax rates on the books for very wealthy people of 73%. There were 90% rates in World War II, but those rates were never paid. They were never paid. Um, so when you look at effective marginal tax rates today versus 50 years ago, 40 years ago, et cetera, um, they're not, they're, they are not, uh, those tax rates are not, are not, are not low today. Um, whenever you're thinking about tax rates in excess of 50%, I, I think whether it's from an economic point of view or whether it's simply from an ethical point of view where the state's taking more of what you earn than you keep yourself, um, you know, problems spring up. And there's just a bulk of evidence that suggests tax rates depress economic growth. And those are having impacts now. It's really very difficult to say that, that if you put all together the tax rates that we face today in society are lower in any sensible way than they have been in the recent past. So my final question is that we've been dealing with a lot of complex economic and historic arguments. And I think young people especially aren't sure how to evaluate conflicting claims. So what would be your advice to a non-economist in trying to sort through these issues? You know, that, that, that's a great question. Um, uh, all the time when I give when I give a I give public lectures, or if I'm at the dentist, <laughs> or I'm sitting somebody next to somebody in an airplane, they say the exact same thing. They say, "I was watching a news show and I see somebody who's got certain credentials in economics and it looks plausible. And I see somebody else who's got similar credentials and they come to they come to very different conclusions." So I think there's kind of Five principles, I think. Now, we'll see if I get five principles. Uh, that I think is useful for, for people to keep in mind. Um, one is that there are trade-offs in life. Um, the most basic lesson of economics is that there are trade-offs. Uh, economists often talk about, you know, there's no free lunch. So whenever anyone makes an argument that makes it sound like there's a free lunch, uh, which is Paul Krupp's argument, Pay somebody to dig a hole, fill that hole back up, but give them $10, that will help the economy. That's a free lunch, and unfortunately, that free lunch doesn't exist in the society we live in. So there are trade-offs. Number two, everything that's desirable in life is not feasible. We've got to make difficult choices. We do face constraints in terms of the amount of time we have, in terms of what we can produce with that time in terms of the other resources that we use, such as energy and land and forests and minerals. The number three is that incentives matter. So in, 
when we increase incentives to engage in productive activities such as taking a job or investing in a new business or investing in new technology, we will see more jobs and more investment and more new technologies if the incentives are there. And government policies and programs and regulations and tax affect those incentives. And at the end of the day, it's for people who aren't specialists and they want to evaluate the plausibility of an argument, put yourself in the position of the decision makers we're thinking about. So put yourself in the position of a small business person and ask yourself if taxes go up or go down or if regulation goes up or go down or if there's uncertainty about what Washington might do, ask yourself what decision would you make? Would you build a new factory? Would you hire here 100 person business, would you hire another 20 people and try to train them and get them up to speed to have them on your staff? Or maybe would you wait if there's a lot of uncertainty about the economy because it's expensive to hire people and try to train them, trying to integrate them in their workforce. Uh, you know, economics is really a common sense science and it's much easier to see how it works when you put yourself in the position of the decision makers talking about, whether it's a worker, whether it's a new business owner, um, and you also have to think about the incentives facing politicians. People talk about the government as if it's a monolith, independent activity. You know, it's just a bunch of people that face the same incentives and respond to the same incentives as we do. And when we think about all the lobbying and pork barrel spending and all the wasteful stuff that goes on in Washington... It's easy to understand why, because people in Washington, they have jobs, they want to keep their jobs, whether they're elected, whether they're a bureaucrat, whether they work in the Department of Agriculture, which has a $150 billion budget every year, even though the agri even though about one half of 1% of our workers now are in agriculture. It's really an anachronism back from the 1880s when it was first created. So put yourself in the position of the decision maker, and economics will become a lot easier. My guest today has been Leo Hanyan. Lee, thank you for being part of the Dead Dialogues. Thanks so much. I enjoyed it. I just want to bring this back briefly to the argument over the welfare state. One of the replies to those of us who warn about the long-term problems we face because of growing government intervention is that our short-term problems are more pressing and require greater government intervention. But as Lee argued, the opposite is true. If we want to revive the economy and guard against future catastrophe, the answer in essence is the same. Liberate individuals by removing government controls, reducing taxes, and slashing the welfare state, which necessitates high taxes. That's what's required to make America prosperous again. And with that, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. To learn more, you can visit endthedebtdraft.com. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash debtdraft, and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only.